Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to Immigrantly, the podcast that delves into profound topics through a unique perspective. I'm your host, Sadia Khan, and I'm thrilled to be back in the studio today. There's something special about sharing physical space with my guests. It really adds an extra layer to our conversations. Not just that, I am excited to explore my favorite, favorite subject, food. Today, we unravel the intricate ways in which food serves as a powerful connector, transcending borders and serving as a universal language that unites us all. Send Chinatown Love is a nonprofit based in New York City. It was created during the global pandemic back in 2020 when the community in Chinatown was struggling. More than restaurants, San Chinatown Love also worked on feeding the elderly, many who lined up to receive meals from the organization. During the pandemic, a rise in hate crimes against the Asian community increased, and so supporting Chinatown was about much more than just the restaurant industry. It was about community. I am so excited to speak with Elaine Mao and Christoph Kroos today about the larger mission and the new cookbook titled Made Here, focusing on recipes from all over Chinatown and beyond. So let's welcome them. Welcome to Immigrantly. I am so excited to have both of you here. Let's start with both of you. So if you could tell me a little bit about yourselves and how 
did you decide to join this organization? So I'm Elaine. I've been with Sunshine Town Love since I think sometime early 2021. Well, the organization has only been around since 2020. Um, It was founded during COVID at the beginning of lockdown to address a lot of the problems that we were seeing in the community. So I moved to New York fall of 2020. And I think joining the organization was like a way to do like a number of things. I mean, obviously, I was very happy and excited to be living in New York, to be living so close to Chinatown. But it was also just really sad to see like what was going on, like not only in the community, but just also in the country at large during that time, you know, politically and socially and everything. And so I think like joining SCL was sort of a way to try to do something positive in my immediate community. Elin, where did you move from? California. That's where I grew up. I'm Christoph. I joined Send Chinatown Love in early 2021, I think, maybe 2022. I can't remember. Primarily to help out with social copywriting. In my free time, uh, I do write about food, not specifically like restaurant reviews or like just like food content, because it's not really my, my intended beat. Uh, I do try to write a lot about the people behind the scenes. So I was doing that a bit uh, in my free time. And uh, my partner sent me a post from Send Chinatown Love saying, looking for volunteers. My mother grew up, was born and raised uh, on Rutgers and Madison in the NYCHA housing projects down there. So I have a lot of family roots in Chinatown. I still have quite a few uh, aunties and uncles that live um, downtown. So I have never lived in Chinatown. I spent my childhood essentially growing up there um, by proxy. My parents uh, live in Philly, and that's sort of where I came up. But I don't really feel like I have too much of an attachment to Philadelphia. No offense. Um, (laughs) And... um, so I wanted to get more involved in, in this community that I have family in and I have family roots in and heritage, but have never really, you know, I can't claim to be from there. So I just wanted to give back. Started doing that. And Alice, who's the managing director of, of the cookbook project, she um, also recruited me to send Chinatown Love. She had read some of my writing, which is something that she does. And very impressively so is that she'll just kind of come out of left field like a, hey, did some digging on you. But in a way that's not intrusive, but more like endearing to the person that she is. She wants to get to know you more. And she's like, you've been writing about all these restaurants that we're actually featuring in this cookbook project. You should come on board. And I was like, oh, cool, a zine, like a 30 page, like maybe this will take a couple weeks. You know, I'm happy to contribute to this thing. And it turned into a two year project, 350 page hardcover, beautiful book with so many volunteers kind of touching it. So This has been our last two years, pretty much. It is indeed a beautiful book, and it's very aesthetically pleasing, visually pleasing as you look at it. I'm looking at it right now. But I want to go back to the organization, the name itself, Send China Down Love. It's a call to action, right? That's actually a really good observation, I guess, just how the name is this call to action. And I mean, neither of us was there at the founding of the organization. Our founder, Justin McKibben, was skateboarding past like his favorite noodle spot and he noticed it was closed and he wanted to sort of start something and he put out a call to action on Instagram and a ton of people just came in with a lot of interest and a lot of different skills. Yeah, I would assume that this is sort of like the vision because I feel like what Santa Chinatown Love does is like so many things. I mean, in the beginning, there was fundraising through direct donations to sort of like a stopgap measure for businesses that were behind on rent or couldn't pay their employees or were struggling with like other things like fires. And then I think there were other things like our gift a meal program where we take donations and we purchase meals or other supplies and we distribute them to underserved communities in the city. 
And then we do like a lot of what Christoph is involved in, like social media, education, and then stuff like this cookbook. And I feel like what we're trying to do is a very holistic thing where we're building community and we're trying to support this community and sort of like, yeah, send a lot of love, like build a lot of love here. And it's not just about like fundraising or education or one thing or another. It's all these things. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. I think uh, love is such a general blanket term in this case, right? And this is also the first time I've thought of the organization's name as a call to action. So good question. I feel like especially at the sort of origin point for the org, what Chinatown was experiencing started well before COVID, the onset of of lockdown. Obviously, the months leading up to it, I remember the Chinese New Year Parade. I was there with my family February 2020, and it was empty. The usually very packed streets, confetti, streamers, everything everywhere. Um, The parade still went on as normal, but I do remember it just being like much less crowded like it typically was. And I think the neighborhood was already experiencing this sort of aversion for tourism. People who typically would hang around Chinatown or go to visit it around that time, just because of the new cycle, the sitting precedent at the time, um, all of these things that were sort of driving the xenophobic, just lack of foot traffic down there. Mm. That's kind of been the case for Chinatown on this roller coaster ride of New York City and its history, right? Once they closed down, um, I forget the name of the street, but that connecting Park block, Row, Park yeah. Road, where it connected Wall Street to or, or just sort of financial district to Chinatown after 9-11, they shut that down and turned it into a police checkpoint. And so there was just this, again, like another barrier to tourism and, and, and just sort of this flow of traffic into Chinatown too. So just over time, right, I think Justin at the time identified this need, which was these mom and pop shops in Chinatown need this umbrella term of, of love, which includes all of these things that Elaine mentioned before. Let's talk a little bit about mom and pop shops. I was doing some research on the organization and it seems like there is a whole process or lack of process. For instance, most of these restaurants are cash only. They don't have online presence. So so there were a lot of reasons why these restaurants were struggling. Can you elaborate on what those specific reasons were and how did your organization address them? Some of the business development efforts that Sun Chinatown has done in the past, whether that's like helping a mom and pop shop, to identify the need for being on Instagram, which is kind of a necessary evil that I've talked to. Actually, one of the interviews I did for this book um, with Cafe Himalaya, which is a Himalayan restaurant on First and First uh, in the East Village, and it's been there for 20 years. I interviewed the niece of the owner. Her name is Tenzing, and she sort of talked about how they didn't have to be on Instagram until the pandemic because it was essentially the only way to get comms out to their regulars, their customers. People wanted to know that they were doing okay, that they were safe, that they were still in business. And so like sort of how we're filling in there, um, as an org at least, is we do help some of these shops that have owners who haven't had to do this kind of thing before, are averse to it, are distrustful of media in general, whether it's because their typical regulars have either unfortunately passed away over time or have moved to cheaper neighborhoods and other enclaves in different boroughs. You know, there is this need in New York, but any really major cities to sort of be able to be found. And that necessary evil I'm talking about is Social media. Social media, uh, as well as website development and all that. So, you know, we're not trying to like, again, for lack of a better word, like yassify these like businesses and make them all trendy and everything. And it's really just a way for them to be found in today's day and age. I wanted to go back to sort of like some of the many factors, because I think that was like a really good question. And that was like a question I was getting a lot when I first started getting involved with 
sent Chinatown Love just from like friends and like other people who found out about like the work that we were doing. And I think one of the questions, like not in a attacking way, but was kind of like, well, why help Chinatown in particular? Because like all businesses are struggling and oh, everyone's having a hard time, right? So like, why are we specifically helping these mom and pop businesses? And like, obviously, yes, like all businesses are struggling. And part of this is we are equipped to help these businesses, like partially because of our individual backgrounds and our language skills. But I think also, um, as Christoph mentioned, I mean, Chinatowns have been like hit really hard, like ever since 9-11 and that whole thing, which I learned about that through working on this cookbook. But as you mentioned, like being cash only, not having an online presence, obviously language barriers and lack of kind of like legal support for matters. A lot of them also didn't really know how to apply for different grants or certifications or loans. A lot of them were not eligible for loans from the city just due to like weird zoning issues where parts of Chinatown are lumped in with Soho or Tribeca. And it was one of the big moments where we were just like, how is this happening that this struggling neighborhood is lumped in with like one of the most affluent areas of the city and is therefore like not eligible for all these services. Mm -hmm. I think the last thing, which kind of I thought of like too late to answer your whole Sunshine Town Love naming question is I think it's like a nice reminder because like one of the things that we noticed early on is that this is like pretty common among immigrants is like not wanting to ask for help. And so it's like many of these businesses weren't even willing to accept donations or ask people for money because they just felt embarrassed or just didn't want to do that. And that's actually like how our gift and meal program was born because we were able to give them money for something that they could provide. I think we have donated more than half a million dollars into businesses now, and we've provided more than 60,000 meals for the community. I want to elaborate this conversation a bit. Now, one of your initial programs used donations to serve food to the elderly. It's an interesting look into American society as a whole, it being an individualistic society and how sometimes elderly are left out of conversations and they feel lonely at times. This whole process of feeding the elderly and these long lines of elderly people waiting for food and waiting to be fed, what did it reveal about the community as a whole and the need for these kinds of programs? I feel like there were so many organizations that were doing similar things like around the time that we were or even earlier. I think one of the ones that really jumps out for me is like Heart of Dinner because they address the need of like not only feeding, but also, you know, like decorating the paper bags with like all of the illustrations and like the notes of support. Because as you mentioned, like the elderly are this sort of largely like invisible, overlooked population, especially in cities like New York. Shout out to Heart of Dinner as well um, for their work specifically to this community within New York City, but also for doing what I think there's an extra step to be taken or that was taken here, which is not so much like food is food is food. So we're going to hand this out to everybody. It's food sovereignty. It's like, is this culturally appropriate and sensitive food? Does this like evoke feelings of like home for like a lot of our elderly? Right. And, and again, like you said, like, I think there is uh, not due reverence taken toward the elderly community in America in general. Um, and that's obviously a, <laughs> a conversation that could fill hours. But in this case, API elderly and sort of the community that our organization um, is looking to serve. It's not just about the food. Obviously, food access is important, but it's about sort of what that food represents to the people that 
are getting it. I want to pivot to this book made here. It's a compilation of different recipes from restaurants all around Chinatown, and it has a plethora of recipes. Tell me about the connection between food and family for each of you. For me, like, it's interesting because this project has just been like a unexpected journey for me personally, because I think unlike Christophe, who did a lot of food writing and was very interested in that space, like I had never done food writing before this project. And I never really grew up thinking of myself as a food person or anybody who was like qualified to talk about food or knew anything. I wasn't good at cooking. You know, I learned how to cut an onion from watching YouTube at the age of like 25. It was just very late in life, I think. But like when I think about it, it is like food has always been such an important thing, obviously. My grandmother like mostly raised me, like my parents were also there, but they worked a lot. And with her, it was just always, we are getting up. We're like thinking about what we're gonna make for lunch. And then like, we are going grocery shopping for dinner. And she was like, come help me cook dinner. Like you need to learn how to cook so that you can take care of yourself. And like when you go off to college or whatever. And when I went off to college, I ended up just like buying a lot of takeout, but you know, still it's just like all of my, fondest memories with my grandmother were in the kitchen and it was like one of the main ways we spent time together because obviously there was a language barrier like she could only speak and understand Mandarin and you know I was like very limited in that capacity so I just think learning to make steamed eggs or like folding dumplings with her was just like most treasured memories and I think that's something that really is like one of the threads that runs through this book is just how food is like often at the center of a lot of these memories with your family. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you guys think this particular book for you is about food or community. In the context of the question, I think it would lean more toward community. I actually think food is almost secondary to sort of the idea we're trying to convey, which is that these immigrant pathways that bring these cuisines to a place like New York, where, as the title suggests, like could only be made here. These are people whose stories, you know, span different geopolitical contexts, things that kind of necessitated them to or led to them ending up in New York. And um, food is the common thread between all these people is the fact that it is a source of, of anchoring comfortability, familiarity, and, and just sort of rooting one's former culture in a new home. For even for some of the second and third generation chefs and owners that we interviewed there, right? Like their backgrounds and their family backgrounds also sort of follow that same journey. Have you guys made any recipes from the book? I did during recipe testing. I made the Golden Diner egg and cheese sandwich. And a shout out to Sam Yu from Golden Diner, dear friend. Um, Elaine did that interview um, with him for the book. One thing I have to say is that it is very surprising always to hear Elaine say that she'd never done food writing before this project because <laughs> I think some of my favorite pieces are from her. But uh, that's an egg and cheese sandwich that takes 24 hours to make just because of oh, the wow. overnight brine you have to do for the hash browns. <laughs> Not to scare anyone away from making it. It's one of the best egg and cheese sandwiches I have ever had in my life. And then the scallion milk buns that you make um, from scratch, which you don't have to do necessarily. But I think all these things kind of you know, make for a very, like, this could only be made in New York type of dish, right? And uh, obviously with a bit of Sam's professional chef training flair to it. 
So that's that's one that I did venture to make, but not all of the recipes um, in the book are that technical, require that many unique ingredients. Um, and we do have a section in the beginning of the book that sort of details the five boroughs as well as the surrounding area of New York City where one could find different ingredients from all these cultures that are featured in the book. I want to tell you about a headcom podcast I think you are going to love. Fake the Nation with Nakeen Frissad is an excellent addition to my list of new podcasts that I'm obsessed with. You may know Nagin from her TED Talk, from NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, or her book, How to Make White People Laugh. On Fake the Nation, Nagin and a rotating cast of her funniest, smartest, and most politically astute friends, people like Samantha Bee, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Larry Wilmore, and so many more break down the news, make you laugh, think, and deliver a gut punch to humanity. Subscribe now so you don't miss another episode of Fake the Nation airing every Thursday. Find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The book has beautiful written illustrations, but it has stories. Every recipe has a story. There's a context. Was there a particular story that resonated with you is there an anecdote that you want to share in this interview with Ruth Lee of Bok Bok Chicken Delicious which is a now closed food stall that was once in the Queen Center Mall Queen Center Mall in Flushing in Elmhurst rather Elmhurst, yeah. um one of our pull out quotes from her is uh it's so hard to assimilate so please don't judge if we're loud or come off rude and she's a Fujianese uh immigrant as are her family and and sort of the business I think that anecdote really resonated with me because while it isn't specifically about food, it is about sort of the immigrant experience and, and understanding that you are, you're not losing who you are when you come here. And so that was just one that, that I really have thought about a lot. As an immigrant myself, what I've noticed is America has this obsession with food from different cultures and they'll consume it and they'll celebrate it. But somehow they are not able to make that connection between the food and its people. Do you think this book tries to bridge that gap? While not necessarily the overarching goal, I do think that this is something that could help burst that bubble. People are averse to allowing these things in. And I think a culture's food is sort of this like bulwark that can sometimes like even falsely represent the culture you know, and, and sort of make it seem monolithic, especially like those who are unfamiliar with like Chinese food in particular is like thousands and thousands of years of history and like kind of expected to be one way because they've only had Chinese American food or like specifically Cantonese American food, you know, which is sort of the, the vanguard cuisine that was developed here. I hope that, you know, somebody in a position where they might not understand how to s- interact with a certain culture or cuisine or, you know, this could be sort of this uh, educational and, and celebratory thing for people to sort of tap into. But I do think that, like, there is this aversion to going any deeper for fear of finding oneself in the unknown, right? Cultures are so vast and varied within even a given country. This kind of does, I hope, that to the point of doing these people justice, you know, I, I hope that it does allow them to sort of speak to their cultures rather than us trying to. And it humanizes people who are creating these great cuisines, right? Mm -hmm. And centering it on them. 
a lot of people will say food is a great connector, but if you're not able to make that connection between people and food, how do you humanize them in a way? Yeah, that's a really good point. We could probably all agree that like this particular country has like a problem with like mindless consumption, not just regarding food, right? Like regarding many things, like whether it's like our clothing or like our electronics, we never really want to engage with like where things are coming from. But I think like one of the other things that like we're hoping to do with this book, as well as like our work as an organization is one of the really like damaging and pervasive myths about like a lot of like immigrant cuisine, right? Like whether it's like Chinese food or Indian food or like Mexican food, you assume it's going to be really cheap and you're expecting to spend like less than $10 and get like more food than you can possibly eat. Versus French food. Yeah, exactly. Or (laughs) Italian food where it's just like, I don't know. I mean, I can make pasta at home, right? That's what I think. But and then like some of these recipes, it's like people complain if it's expensive. And then like you look at the recipe and it's like, I actually can't make that at home. Like it's so hard. It takes like hours and so many ingredients. And it's just like, you know, I think like the example I've used before is like the turnip cake that you get at dim sum. It's just like, I'm never going to make that at home. It just looks so complicated. And I think an appreciation, like not only for like the process, but for the people and also just the multifaceted nature of like not only their lives, but like these cultures. And Christoph had a really great piece in the book about how Thai food is not just Pad Thai and not just these dishes that have become sort of emblematic of this entire country. Something I I learned in, in doing a lot of research for this book too is there are so many dishes in so many of these cultures that do actually give credence to their origins. A lot of these, uh, let's say like, for instance, right, like these Thai noodle dishes, in the name they will sort of use this word that denotes noodles, Chinese origins, and how that sort of proliferated its way up and down East and Southeast Asia. And so, I mean, this book doesn't really draw any borders between, you know, you'll, you'll flip from a Filipino recipe to a Indian recipe to a Chinese American vegan recipe, right? So obviously, like, not all of these cultures are informing each other's cuisines, but many of them are, and many of them are informed by the cuisines of neighboring countries or by colonization or by mm. so many factors. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where do you think nonprofit organizing needs to go to further push these kinds of narratives? For me personally, I think there is, I'm going to speak from my own experience, which is relative to this nonprofit and the work that it does, and the work that obviously Elaine and I do as individuals, and and sort of this connection to, and I also want to just like take the time, because I think I might have forgotten to mention that Send Chinatown Love, as well as this book, um, while Chinatown is in the name, it absolutely does not cover the exact geography of this book. This book is featuring restaurants that are out in Queens, or Greenpoint, Brooklyn, to Manhattan Chinatown, to the Upper West Side. Um, so it is sort of this more expansive view. And China, San Chinatown's work sort of does, isn't just relegated to Manhattan Chinatown. And again, Chinatown is a monolithic term. There's so many ethnic enclaves in New York that are referred to as Chinatowns that are made up of <laughs> way more um, cultures than just Chinese people too. So I think the steps that nonprofit organizing can take to take a step further in my opinion is, is really to I'm not going to say write books like this, but like <laughs> it, it is to really like get to the source of, and I'm not faulting our social media presence. Obviously, I'm a part of creating that content, but I think 
you can highlight small businesses on your Instagram page that has a lot of a, a bigger following and say, hey, like you should go visit this place. And that's great. But mm-hmm. what about talking about the existential crises of the neighborhood and like why maybe this business might be in jeopardy and lending your voice, I think, to um, these narratives that help shape these forces that shape these neighborhoods. I think as an org, we've, we've started to do that, obviously. We're no longer just a mutual aid fund because that's not what is necessary right now. But that's mm-hmm. my two cents. As Christoph mentioned, I mean, there are so many like issues that are facing these communities that will not just be story told away, I suppose. Like obviously in Manhattan's Chinatown, there is the impending threat of the mega jail, like the tallest jail in the world, right? Yeah. Which will not be great for that community. And then there's, you know, just like ongoing factors like gentrification. There's a lot of issues that I think should be addressed more at like a political involvement or like a policy or like other sort of level. And, you know, I think that we are definitely like doing some of that. And I think that's like really the important next step, at least in this city. You're absolutely right. But I guess storytelling is a great first step, right? Mm -hmm. Because it really connects people through shared humanity. What do you feel is your greatest impact as an organization? Because there's so much work that this org has done, so many forms it's taken over the years, we share this with a lot of other API-run nonprofit organizations that exist here in New York, is that we're able to sort of take the shape that the neighborhood needs us to. The neighborhood, I mean, you know, the community would need us to in a given time. In my experience with the org, I think our greatest accomplishment has been it's the food that we've been able to distribute. It's the mm-hmm. um, gift a meal initiative that I think is sort of our flagship thing to, you know, for lack of a better term. Because I think that that is directly impacts the livelihoods and well-being of people in the city. The gift a meal program has had such a huge impact and it continues to just have a really big impact on our businesses and the community. And then I guess, obviously, I mean, I'm a little bit biased, but I think that this book is doing a lot of important work as well, just because, you know, it is like a self-published, completely volunteer-made effort. And it's telling these stories, many of which would not otherwise be getting told, whether just due to like some of the stories were hard to tell, right? Like some of them like required family or like translators or like a lot of persistence on our part. And many of these are like places that would be getting overlooked by traditional media or traditional Mm. food media, right? Where you're really looking for like something very flashy or like the best of this or whatever. And it was interesting to work on this because I have like a background in journalism. I went to journalism school. And I think one of the things we were always taught is like, oh, like, is this newsworthy? Like, why is this story like needing to be told, right? And this book, it's very human interest. Like some of these stories, like you couldn't reasonably pitch it to your editor at like your news publication because it's like, well, why do I want to hear about this again? But it's like, you do, you do want to hear about it and we're going to tell you about it. And it's, it's all in this book. And I think it's been like so incredible to see that we've done this and we've like told these stories. We're sharing like these recipes and our book has, been like more successful than I would have even like dreamed you know we've been on these lists from like Bon Appetit and like the Food Network and Vogue among other like publisher backed books that just have you know way more like development resources poured into it and it's just to be able to 
elevate like these stories onto the same stage and to be getting that kind of attention, I think was. Yeah. If you had to summarize the main goal for Send Chinatown Love, what would that be? I think a lot of our work is centered around building a community and making like a community with longevity, right? Like we want Chinatowns and like all of these Asian communities and like all of the small businesses communities just to not be like getting by. Hmm. I think it's to see the community that a lot of our staff and volunteers either came from or identify with or just appreciate to see it thrive. And I'm going to go way high level here, <gasps> um, but to kind of forge these like places in New York and these businesses as cornerstones of their respective communities or just these communities relative to the city as these important cultural enclaves, these places that are typically exotified or are typically overlooked and to make them sort of more on the forefront of uh, both new and old New Yorkers' radars. In the end, if you were to define the United States of America, a word or a sentence? So this is like my typical last question. I'm always intrigued by how my guests view the U.S. Mm. I would call it a deeply flawed and deeply broken, delicious melting pot. Um, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> That's off the top of my head. There's so much baggage <laughs> that I could start to espouse, but that's, uh, that's what I thought of just now. <laughs> Alien for you? So I think my word is perhaps like potential, um, yeah. because I agree with Christoph. It's like, I think many of us are deeply disappointed with this country on almost a daily basis. No, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we were born here, right? It's easy to be really critical, but then it's like at the same time, like the country is shifting demographically. And I think like there is like also potential for us to see some changes in our lifetime, I think. Thank you so much, both of you. Where can people find information about the organization and where can they get the book? That's all on our website. So we are selling direct only, no Amazon over here. Uh, this is a self-published <laughs> book. So um, send Chinatown love, all one word, dot com, uh, where you can read about the org as well as order our book. And our Instagram is also send Chinatown love. And we also are selling through a few stockists throughout New York City and beyond. Thank you, guys. This was so good. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you so much. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. My today's outro will be a call to action. Go check out Send Chinatown Love website and order made here. Support this great organization in whatever way you can. And come back next week for another incredible conversation. This episode was produced by me, written by Boba Kafshari and me. The editorial review is done by Shay Yu. Our sound designer and editor for this episode is Hazik Ahmed Farid. Theme music is done by Simon Hutchinson. Take care and be kind to yourselves. Thank you.